welcome to this latest episode of the Hitchhiker's Guide to Scottish Literature podcast. I'm Christian Kerr. And I'm Vicky Riley. And we are cruising along the highways and byways of Scottish literature, introducing you to the best Scottish writing. As ever, the podcast is sponsored by Berlin Limited, one of Scotland's leading independent publishers. Uh, Today we are talking um, about one of Scotland's most talented contemporary authors, um, Ron Butlin. Uh, We've worked with him for years, and he's great to work with, um, with his poetry and his recent children's books. But um, we are especially delighted that this year that we have got the rights again to republish his classic debut novel, The Sound of My Voice, which was first published in 1987. Um, and then in the second half of this podcast, we'll be talking to Ron about his um, novel and just about his writing life in general. And then we will uh, round off the podcast with Ron performing some of his brilliant poetry from the collection The Magicians of Edinburgh. Yeah, it's really nice to have um, an author of a classic novel yeah. in the flesh to talk to. Live. Both of the podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but back to the sound of my voice. Um, I think we could probably say that it's a novel that's um, a bit of a cult classic. Um, one who whose readers and fans absolutely adore, but it's one that hasn't yet broken into the commercial mainstream in the same way as, say, Irvin Welsh has or, or Ian Rankin has. Yeah, um, Alistair Braidwood, uh, host of another excellent literature podcast. Scots We Hay. Uh, and a really great review blog has referred to it um, in a couple of reviews uh, as the greatest Scottish novel you've probably never heard of. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I think that's a really good way of describing it. Uh, Ron's novel is like a virtuoso feat, Mm. I think, and it's completely deserving of the label classic um, in sort of all of its myriad ways. Like, as as a novel, it's of its time, it's of the period it was written in, the 1980s, but it's so timeless yeah. in many ways. And it plays with form. It mm. does something different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not your usual run-of-the-mill procedural anything. Yeah. Um, and in it does so in a meaningful way. And um, it's influenced other writers, like the yeah. ones you just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, both Irvin Welsh... And Ian Rankin have probably named it as as an influence to their work, and you can see that influence, even though all three writers perform in different ways. Um, you, there are still recognitions and reflections on on all three uh, writers. You know the the harsh, grim, unsettling inner lives of the characters that yeah, are also sort of restlessness. Yeah, that are leavened with you know, mm. good gallows humour and also written with energy and empathy. Um, I mean, you could probably say that these are actually common ingredients of all of Scottish literature. Yeah, well, and the <laughs> Classic wit. ingredients. The wit as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the novel, um, The Sound of My Voice might use the conventions of, you know, a, a, a dark inner life, um, but he absolutely presents them in a fresh, invigorating, invigorating way, and even fresh in terms of 30 years after its first publication. Um, it's a teeny tiny gem! Very slender. Yes. You can read it in a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
with a nice, maybe, maybe, maybe not a nice bottle of brandy the by your side. <laughs> yeah. Let that roll around in your mouth. <laughs> um, so it's 150 pages, pretty much, and it tells the tale of um, biscuit executive and alcoholic um, Morris McGellan, who, in the course of the book, spirals from being a functioning alcoholic to somebody who is absolutely on the path of um, self-destruction. I mean, the book pretty much only really covers a few days in the... Yes, Uh, a few days in the working life. Yeah. Um, But there are also reflections. There's little flashbacks and things like that. But, um, But generally it's, you know, a few days from breakfast to bedtime you know you get the breakfast routine and all that kind of thing but within that you delve deep into his consciousness which is just ringing with thoughts and feelings and fears and and all that kind of thing yeah it's a really um sort of by the minute yeah kind of engrossing in a monologue yeah there's an there's an intensity to to um to his to his mindset which you might think Therefore, that it would be a first-person narrative. Yeah. You know, like a lot of you know inner uh, monologue-type novels. But the Sound of My Voice skillfully uses the second-person narrative, which, to great, great effect, um, it really highlights the the fragmentation of Morris's state of mind. You know, it really um, portrays that both the the distancing. And the delusional sort of state where he kind of he's referring to himself as the, as another person kind yeah. of thing, but then also bringing it into that sort of accusing, self aware, self loathing yeah. moments where you kind of feel he's in front of the mirror having a dark night in the soul. Right, and it's it's so much about this sort of oscillation between um, self knowledge and self loathing and like assurance and reassurance yeah and just the sort of acceptance that's like going on like and we've just got to carry on yeah you know yeah um, and and the the delusion in that sort of trying to bring himself out of his spiraling mindset because he mm-hmm. he has wee jokes with himself all the time absolutely yeah. <laughs> and like in a sort of you've got to laugh kind of way yeah but then you just can't <laughs> Yeah, and I think that the the second person narrative, it's like, uh, because you do this, you, 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 you. Yeah. And sometimes you think, of course, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then then you're just like, no, I would never do that. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's it's very gripping and, you know, intimate and a bit coercive, actually. Mm. Um, But then... um, at the same time, it can be really distancing and make you not feel any empathy for this person at all mm. because you recoil yeah. from the actions mm. probably more than the thoughts. <laughs> yeah, and, right? and just the constant repetition of moments in the narrative as well. Like, he'll mm. he'll say something and then maybe later on he'll go back to that memory. And it is, it's such a real way of you know, displaying what we all do, which is yeah. you go over moments in your heads and yes. sort of say, oh, this is what I said at that and time. And reinterpret a little yeah. bit yeah. and actually retell the story to suit what's mm. happening in the moment. Wait, yeah. To, like, in a way to either console yourself or... <laughs> reproach yourself. Reproach yourself, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I think one of the things that's so interesting about this um, is... Uh, then it's one of a very small family mm. of second person novels. Yeah, it's not a it's not a very common experiment. Yeah, um, and, um, and which I think is a good thing because I think yeah. if you read too many novels in the second person, <laughs> you might get a bit mad. <laughs> I mean, so, you've got you've got to do it right, and and Ron gets it absolutely spot on. Yeah, and uh, well, I think one of the slightly uncanny things to me is that. Um, uh, Jay McInerney, Bright Lights, Big City, um, was published only three years before this. And it's about um, a journalist uh, in New York City in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And it's about that fast life and the sense of, um, you know, being on not on the game that's the wrong <laughs> that's not what I mean but like being in the rat race right okay and the being an in crowd mm. and like life move and expectations right. moving on and I think that this novel which is you know just a few years later is so much about that mm. it's but about in, in social a, convention but in a much more mundane uh yes suburban yes. atmosphere you know he's there, there there is nothing glamorous about Morris Magellan's life no <laughs> and um but yet it's about expectations and he's he keeps saying it's not enough yeah mm. it's not enough yeah. the mud is coming to get me you yeah know, I'm in the mud and performing um, a role yeah yeah and and the sort of expectations that that come with that mm. and then um very much more recently in uh, 2013 M- uh, Mohsin Hamid who um was just nominated for the booker mm. um last year uh wrote a novel how to get rich how to get filthy rich in rising asia See, I've not read either of 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 those other second person. Well, narratives. I listened to the audiobook of ah. um, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, and um, it was quite funny because, of course, actually you have the voice saying you do this, and you do that, <laughs> but um, that's about a, a very young man mm. uh, rather than a middle aged man. I think it's funny that uh, Morris McGallan is 34 years old and is yeah. definitely considered to be middle-aged. I know, I know. Which maybe 30 years ago <laughs> yeah. I was middle-aged, but these days it's, uh, you know, you're, be- you're certainly still a millennial or a boomerang. <laughs> um, but uh, both of those, both these other two novels are about, like, life in societies where there's, like, unbridled capitalism. Mm. So mm. the Reagan and Thatcherite. yeah. Uh, 80s mm-hmm. and then like the Asian boom mm. of the 2000s and it seems to be about like what are the expectations of life yeah. and like narrative paradigms and what have you under these conditions mm. and what happens to humanity yeah mm-hmm. yeah and a lot of people um because more so than those two books I expect though I ha- as I say right. I've not read them is that because of their mundanity as well as Mm. you know uh, I mean American Psycho is a bit like this even though it's not a second person narrative yeah yeah uh uh-huh yeah but um, a lot of people feel that um there must be an autobiographical element yes. to, to the sound of my voice <laughs> because of the the reality of the, the voice. You just think, well, this must have been Ron's life at some mm. point. But he has always insisted that that is absolutely not the case. Um, and he's also said that he once gave the novel to a friend of his who was a recovering alcoholic um, 
uh, years after it had been published and his friend had was blown away at just how well he captured yeah what it's like to be at work mm. under those circumstances yeah. and like come in and create merry hell and then go <laughs> off home and realize that the whole day passed yeah yeah and i think i mean it's astonishing mm. that people could operate in the workplace yeah. in that manner yeah mm. and i think the fact that this one is um set in a much more r- real Mm-hmm. place than Manhattan mm-hmm. yeah. high life in the 80s or whatever right. is what makes it even more powerful mm. and well and the other resonant. thing yeah and the another thing to say though of course it's a real place but mm. the the city and town or yeah you have no idea where it's set it could be anywhere it could yeah. be could be Surrey it could yeah. be you know Rotherham it could be Bezden yeah exactly <laughs> it could be anywhere <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and it definitely doesn't, you know, we, we if, when we say it's the greatest Scottish novel you've probably never heard of. Yeah. You know, there's this wonderful episode at the beginning uh, where he remembers a childhood outing yeah. that happens specifically in the Scottish borders. Yeah. They're named as a, as a locale, but... That's the, the only time. That's the only time. Uh, and you, I definitely had a sense that the big city that he was in... But he was in a big city, in or, another flashback. Or he, worked, he was working yeah. in a city, but yeah. he didn't live there because he takes the train to work yeah. every day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the alcoholism that um, the, uh, Morris is going through is just really a symptom of the other things that are going on in his life. It's not really just a book about an yes. alcoholic. Yes. Like, I think Ron is uh, very to say that this is not a book about alcoholism mm. like that's not the only subject yeah here. it's about the mental struggle of somebody who has not had the best childhood yeah. um who's had a bit of a um a, a not very great relationship with his father the, the yeah. psychological effects of modern life and doing all the things that you're supposed to do and then right. thinking well, is this it? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and um yeah. It's it's one of those books that you, you really read through your fingers. <laughs> well yeah, like except particularly from uh, the opening. Oh god, yeah. Let let's read the opening paragraph. You were at a party when your father died, and immediately you were told a miracle happened. A real miracle. It didn't last, of course, but was convincing enough for a few moments. An hour later, you took a girl home and tried to make love to her. You held on to her as she pleaded with you. Even now, her distress is still the nearest you have come to feeling grief at your father's death. You are 34 years old. Everything that has ever happened to you is still happening. Ah! Yeah. I mean, there is that is a few lines, a few sentences, and yet... There is so much in each yeah. of those sentences. It's pretty much all you need to know <laughs> about the character yeah. to then sort of see why what happens afterwards happens. Yeah, I mean, and the, like the self delusion, mm. like the idea of the miracle, and you know, because it, there's this sense that like, this is a moment at which something is meant to happen. Yeah, but then a sense that you because he mentions the, a miracle quite a lot, especially in yeah. the beginning of the book. Yeah. It's one of those words which Ron does quite a lot in this book is that there's specific words or specific phrases that recur mm. again and again at different moments in the sort of psychological breakdown, and the miracle one, uh, particularly at the beginning. Is actually one of the moments that that makes me think of um, 
of how this book is timeless and not just rooted in sort of Thatcherite Britain. Um, because to me it sort of highlights a very something that is still really current in the modern world is that conflict that we all have pro- uh, that we, and, and affects different people in different ways, but the conflict between the yearning to be special, yes. to, to be extraordinary, to be noticed, right. and yet at the same time the almost fetishizing of the ordinary which we to rebuke those feelings as yeah. well you know it's it's that whole i want to be special but you know there is nothing or but those inspirational fo- um, posters that just say the best thing in the world is a cup of tea and a pair of slippers <laughs> yes yes you know and, and, it's, and <laughs> which is like the opposite of the pursue your dreams yeah you know somebody climbing but el capitan but, kind of poster right but no con- yeah so both those inspirational yes. quotes yeah. Yeah, that yeah. that kind of culture yeah. is what we are like in a cycle with constantly yes, just now. Absolutely. Which in itself is like also the, a performance those, yes. like like real life. Um, you know, and you, you 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 go to the ordinary cup of tea and slippers thing when you're not feeling special and ordinary. Yeah. So they're supposed to act like a salve to you but then right. at the same time you always go back again to the mm. why am I not special why am I not extraordinary right thing. and then it's ex- that's exploited um much what? to the detriment of one's liking of Morris McGallan um at work mm. in this series of meetings that he has mm. um he wants to boss them yeah <laughs> and he, it's it's funny because of course he's he's got this sort of um Don Draper-esque yeah. um like uh, condescension towards mm. his work, mm. um, uh, but uh, yes, and so he 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 yeah he bosses them, he corrects them, and he um, and he like, and he like tries to get one over. Yeah, on on on, and on. it's very very funny. Yeah, but again, like I mean, you know, Irvin when Irvin Welsh when he wrote the the foreword. Um, says how much that is rooted in the Thatcherite Britain and all that kind of thing what it's really like that whole cycle of ordinary extraordinary is the consumer right world that we're that we're all living in well it's like if you buy something it'll make you extraordinary because Mm. we say that you know we're creating this is a luxury product Mm. but then everyone has it and it's all I mean you you can even link it to our relationship with social media yeah, you know the way we perform our lives on social media. Well, and then, all the photos are the same. Yeah, and 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 we know it's a performance, and so yeah. we berate the performance, but then we can't stop doing the performance. Yeah, yeah. it's just this never-ending cycle. So, I, of course, but in sound of my voice, it's the mud which keeps <laughs> continuing to rise and almost drown them because. You know, we try so hard to just be that guy, the one that... There's actually, like, as much as we're, like, talking about Mad Men and, uh, you know, Bright Lights, Big City and all that kind of thing, the person that I thought about when I was reading about it was David Brent from The Office. (laughs) I mean, it's not as... Obviously, it's not as comic and... as, yes, th- as yeah, that. Yeah. But there is that, you know, that no, that, that's, that notion of yeah. hey, I'm a chilled out entertainer totally. with with my with the secretarial pool and all that kind of thing. We yes. get on, you know. Well <laughs> and also like my my sort of attempts at culture that are yeah. you know, like the soundtrack is so interesting mm. because there's all this classical music. Um and he he definitely like um 
on one hand, you get the sense that he's playing this music to block out his mm. thoughts, like to hit pause a little bit, in the yeah. same way as it's serving as alcohol is doing that as mm. well, trying to drown out the sound of my voice, yeah. the sound of your voice. <laughs> I have uh, the, that my pronoun is quite weird, actually. <laughs> and I wonder if that's one of the reasons why people lean towards the autobiographical reading as mm. well a little bit. But it's it's very much a sort of classic FM playlist. Mm. You know, it's all the great. Or Abigail's hits. party or something like ah, that. Yeah. <laughs> so David, yeah, that's that's a great analogy. Because because this character, you know, a biscuit factory is well, it's tea and biscuit. Yeah, as it's Ron not, told us. Yeah. <laughs> but um, and and you you do get the sense that he is trying to tell himself to 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 be. Uh, accepting of his domestic life he wants to be completely in love with his wife he yeah. wants to get on with well, his children he wants to enjoy his weekend in the garden on the deck chair but he can only do it for so long until he's you know punching in the drinks, drinks cabinet to you know yeah get rid of the mud <laughs> yeah no that that those that's so skillfully told and mm. uh, he refers so he refers to his children as the accusations. I know. Every every time I read that, the accusations, the accusations, like just my heart just kept leaping into my mouth because of the harshness of yeah. it. Because it sort of depersonalises that. Yeah, yeah. Because there's so many ways, like who's the accuser? Right. Who's, yeah, you know, uh, and it's just, it's just heartbreaking every time yeah. I read it. Yeah, my sense was that it was about his own self-loading. Mm. Like, it's a self-accusation. Like, yeah. he sees them and he wants to be the father he didn't have. And they have the innocence that he no longer has yeah. either. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, he does say who they are and, the, you know, he does things with his kids. Yeah. Elise and Tom. <laughs> but it sticks out more that they're the accusation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's been lots of different editions of this book and there's been lots of amazing reviews for this book. As I say, it's a bit of a cult classic and those that love it really do. Yeah. And the reviews have never been anything other than completely admiring of the book. You know, he's been compared to, to Saul Bellow and Kafka and I can completely get those comparisons. But there's shades of Kelman in there as well, I think, because... You know, it probably is a book now that you can sort of place in the bracket of something that um, explores mental health. But it's a great exploration in the same way that Kafka and, and Kelman and all that do is that the of the absurdity of modern life. Yeah. That you just cannot get on and understand the world that you're living in. You look at it and you think yeah. you should understand it, <laughs> but nothing's making sense. Right. And then you just think, am I going mad? Or how, yeah. do, I, how do I stay sane in this, yeah. in this world? Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah and that's where a lot of the humour comes from. Yeah. And I think that when you um, when you talk about these amazing reviews, I wonder about the, the current critical climate or literary, gen- you know, like the trends in publishing or what have you, and how this book... Um, how this how this book will be responded to being reissued no. right now because um, you know obviously we've I've read it now for the first time yeah me too in just this this month <laughs> yeah um, in the wake of um, me too mm. and a, a a real upsurge yeah in and mainstreaming uh-huh. of. Um, feminist writing and and the making clear of 
the actual reality of day-to-day living in the workplace yes. for lots of women. That's exactly and it. There's and a huge strand of that in, in the sound of my voice as yeah, well. Yeah, and, and even, like, you can see how the first paragraph that you read out mm. might be off-putting to some yeah. people. And they might just be like, oh, no, this is going to be a, no- this is going to be a novel about a man who yeah, there were takes sp- what he wants yeah. or whatever. And, and, we're and it's not feel self-aware. So- yeah, yeah. yeah, we're going to feel sorry for him, even though he's going to spend the whole time treating women like crap. Which, yeah. in a way, he does. <laughs> a little bit but it's not done in a way that I can that well it's not vainglorious no, or no, it doesn't no, glorify it no, glamorise it no no yeah, yeah uh-huh. in the way that's actually something something like Mad Men the series mm. actually did yeah really until like certain moments but it was still glamorous mm. the, the, super, the, the surfaces were just always so beautiful yeah um yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm ast- astonished, really, to think that in 1987, when I was a small child, mm. that um, that was happening to women in the workplace. Yeah. Like, my mother was in the workplace, <laughs> and that was happening to her. <laughs> well, yeah. And it still happens now. Yeah, And, yeah. you know, there it all is. Yeah. It is very current, even though it was written 30 years ago. And I think it is definitely a classic that um, should be read by modern readers, by younger readers now, not just as a period piece that depicts a time, you know, that, you know, they weren't born in, but just a really brilliant exploration Mm. of an inner life. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember who it was that we were talking to recently who was talking about how Catcher in the Rye isn't all that a great book. But it's it's the kind of book that gets people at a certain age. Mm. And they're just like, ah, someone else is having a teenage rebellion problem. See, I've not read it since I was about 14, 15, 16. Um, But I can totally see this being the kind of book that could change your life if you picked it up. Mm. You know, just or like get you into literature. Ron, I think, I mean, it, it probably goes back to his poetry, yeah. but his skill with language is pro in his novels is... Well, make, it's, it's fizzy yeah. and short uh-huh. and, but and profound at the same time. Yeah, and says yeah. everything it needs to say. Yeah, yeah there's no flim-flam in this. No flim-flam. <laughs> Rehearsals for the End of Time Room heaters switched off, and all the lights. Doors locked, steel shutters pulled down, benches removed. Arctic winds and North Sea sleet scour every surface of its history. No pyramids, no renaissance, no rise and fall of mighty empires. Not now, not ever. Only this battened-down brickwork, only me going nowhere. I'm sure it was a summer's day when I came across a metal footbridge. I remember sunlight. Mid-January now by the feel of it, and the clock's hands stuck at a quarter past ten. Once upon a time I lived in the warm hills above Barcelona. I'd stroll each evening beneath shower upon shower of falling stars. So many wishes to make, so many lifetimes to look forward to. 
These are Scottish stars hammered into east coast darkness, right up to the hilt, bringing the cosmic wheel to a standstill. An RAF jet hangs silent and motionless a hundred feet or so above Platform 2. Had it been planning to liberate someone, somewhere? Was it en route to yet another country to help them become just like us? No train in sight, nor hope of any. Rehearsals for the end of time take place, it seems, here at Looker's Station. So we are here in the offices of Berlin today and with us we have the very lovely Ron Butlin. Hello Ron. Hello there, Vicky. <laughs> nice to see you. I know, again. Yeah, again. <laughs> if you don't know, Ron's very near to the office, so he does pop in <laughs> quite a bit. Um, so we've been talking about um, The Sound of My Voice, which we know as your debut novel, but we are bringing it back into focus again with a new edition. How do you feel about um, new, renewed attention on a novel that, that you wrote a fair wee while ago? Well, clearly delighted, <laughs> <laughs> because it's getting attention that it wouldn't have had otherwise. I mean, it keeps getting revived and then sinking into obscurity again. <laughs> so I'm hoping that this time with Berlin's six horsepower or whatever it is, the yeah. six-cylinder engine driving <laughs> it forward, um, we will uh, revive it and it will stay yeah. revived, which would be wonderful. Because it's, it's been uh, very often referred to as like the undiscovered classic or yes. the best Scottish novel that you don't know and all that kind of thing. So it's got, it's got really fervent fans. Um, so wh- wh- why do you think it is that... Um, that you're, you're, it's still a bit of an undiscovered gem? Well, I don't know. You're really <laughs> better to ask some of the other people. I really have no idea why. I, I know that when uh, when I wrote it, it was the first novel I did, and it started mm. off as a short story, because yeah. I uh, just I, the year previously I'd published a collection of short stories, mm. uh, The Tilting Room, and I just assumed this was another short story, mm. and it just got longer and longer and longer and didn't seem to come to any point and didn't seem to come to an end and I thought my goodness is this the novel <laughs> you know it wasn't a plan and it, and then I gradually realized that it was a novel right and uh, and then I changed the my attitude to it <laughs> then I thought my goodness it suddenly became sort of weighted a bit. So you weren't you you never really expected to, no. to to write a novel. No, it's not that I didn't expect to. I, I thought I would know I was starting a novel when I started it, mm. but in fact, as I said, I, I had no idea, and this just kept going and kept going. Mm. I mean, the way I write is that I don't re I don't think much. <laughs> I believe thinking is very overrated. Right. And when you're trying to do creative or imaginative work, thinking positively gets mm. in the road. And so what I tend to do is I hear a few words of my imagination, let's call it, and I don't try and understand them. I just 
hum them. I think that would be the easiest way of putting it. Like as if they were sounds. Right. And then see if they suggest other words. And then it just keeps going and keeps going like that. that, That's amazing to hear because when you read the sound of my voice, every word seems so carefully thought out and placed and... And considered in that way, it just seems bizarre well, that you weren't thinking about it's what you were It's all in the concealing of art. <laughs> I, 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 think, I, I think that's fascinating to hear because um, I um, love how the sounds are sort of so... The sounds of words lead to the ideas. Yeah. That strikes me as something that you really like respond to in like sentence by sentence so there are a lot of homophones there's this great moment where you talk about having a case um I think I'll get some brandy on the way home just in case and then the character says to the off-licensed person oh I'd like to have a case please or I'll take a whole case just a whole case just a whole case just Just a case just a case and and it's like the meaning of the word case yeah it becomes a lot more fluid is fluid, yeah. but is yeah. and they're like meanings that are sort of different, but really, they, they, the context makes yeah. them sort of adjacent and similar. Yeah, and that is the way that I feel my way into in, in, into the book. And what happens is I don't write it chronologically. Well, in the sense of the narrative mm. chronology. So straight, you didn't begin with to, your very no. Good I've, I've never mm. done that. Right. Um, I wish I could. It would save so much time. <laughs> but I don't. What, what I did with this, is much the same as I've done with almost everything, is that I have a few the, these words, they suggest more words, and then I keep going as long as that particular strand has got energy. might be a few days. And then I come in the next day, sit down, start work again, and something completely different starts. Right. And I don't really know what on earth it's got to do with it, and but it feels right, so I just carry on with that, and and then a few days after that, that gives up, and then next <laughs> time I start, and it's something else completely different, something's completely characters that I've never even heard of, mm. sort of pop up and do things, and I'm saying, my God, who are they? Mm. And uh, and then eventually I end up say something like this, if I remember, I must have had at least twenty twenty five different little sections of maybe three or four pages each at least and then probably when I was three quarters of the way through doing it through doing it I would think hmm think is that what the novel's about because <laughs> I really hadn't much idea and then I'm just sort of following where it was taking me and then once I've got a glimmering of an idea still not very clear I then start pushing these pieces around trying to see how they might form a chronology right and it's a bit well actually it's a bit like doing a jigsaw without any any picture and gradually there becomes more i think yeah this is this this is the beginning this is that this is middle i think and if this happens then it has to happen before that and and then i start seeing how the the edges might be kind of trimmed and expanded. Yeah. It's almost so like you're meat, sculpting the Almost like I'm yeah. sculpting it. It's a wee bit like that. Yeah. And then gradually it begins, and then I go, oh, and then there's usually a moment where I go, by gosh, that is, that's what it's about. Right. <laughs> so you now do have we those, can start. <laughs> you <laughs> do have those Eureka moments. Yes. Oh, yes. 
And it, I mean, if I got to the end of it and there was no eureka moment, my God, we'd be in, <laughs> we'd be in problems. It sounds quite fun, that method. Oh, it is. Well, yeah. I enjoy it. Yeah. I enjoy it, but it's the only way I know, and it's not a way I'd recommend. <laughs> you know, I mean, it really is very... Yeah. I, mean, I mean, this novel's what, it's about 100 and... Nearly, yeah, 140 odd pages. I mean, at one point it was probably twice that. Really? Yeah. Mm. You know, but then bits get taken away that are needed, sentences get better focused, etc., etc. And it gradually goes down to the (laughs) quintessence. Um, form and content are one. <laughs> <laughs> and before that, do you think your training in poetry kind of yes, helped you? Yes, without there? a doubt. Yeah, because you I'm were more... sure, yes, that's it, because I started off as yeah. poetry and I still do mm-hmm. poetry. But I think it's the, the oral and that's in the way that I respond to the sounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, and that's possibly also a Scottish thing, the oral tradition. It's mm-hmm. probably all in there. Mm. Yeah. yeah, the um, episode right at the beginning of the book, where um, which is one of the only... Um, where he's remembering his childhood boarders picnic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's one of the only episodes, one of the only episodes in the book that has a particular place. Um, yes. Uh, in this sort of borders landscape uh, with the croft and the caravan and um, you're working through this incredibly deep philosophical question about perspective <laughs> yeah. through the... Um, through the eyes, through the eyes of the through child. Through the eyes of a child, yeah. Um, and that feels to me almost like a poem in itself. Yes, except that hopefully it's readable. Yeah. And, and accessible. Yeah. And it's the kind of puzzle that I remember mm. having as a child and occasionally as an adult still have. <laughs> and, and was it purposeful that that was the only section in the book that was in a named place? No, I, I don't think I actually name where the place is. Yeah. No. Do I? I don't think so. No, it's so. just in the it's borders. Just, it's just, yeah, it kind of evokes the borders for, yeah. those that, for those that know the borders. And the rest of it, I, there are places that, that I've drawn on. Mm-hmm. Like the factory where he's the executive of biscuits yeah. <laughs> is um, comes from a memory of when I worked in the Lions Tea Factory. At oh, point. right. You know, except I wasn't an executive. <laughs> the closest I got to was walking past the executive offices <laughs> on my way to lower, um, to lower, loading lorries. Oh, so you were in the loading bay? Which I was bay. doing. I was in the loading bay. Ah, bin. see. I was in the loading bay. <laughs> hoping doing the for, real hoping work. for a full house. Hoping for a full house, yeah. And that's that's the kind of thing they talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remember seeing, you know, how tightly organised it was. Never went to clock in and clock out and this. And yet in the executives, you could see they were just sitting there you know, feet up on the desk, wandering in when they wanted, wandering out when they wanted, having mm. liquid lunches, all the sort of different world altogether. <laughs> yes, and um, if you had worked in a tea factory, why did you choose biscuits in particular? I mean, cause I, I, it's just so well imagined. <laughs> when you talk about biscuit banter, and yes. just, is it just because biscuits are comical words I think it's in just itself? Because, in probably because I pictured it, and I did picture the the... the 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 Lions Tea Factory and mm. it just they kind of go together, you know. <laughs> yes. You know. So what was it? A, what was it? They say a tea is too wet without one, or a biscuit is <laughs> yes. too dry without, without tea. Yeah. And um, and it just and I 
it just popped in our mind, and I thought, oh, yeah, that's, that feels right, let's see, and then we went on. It was, yes, I didn't kind of try something, try something else. I, yeah. It just popped up, and then I just went with it, and it seemed to, seemed to be right. <laughs> um, so. And, of course, biscuits are front and centre in the new edition. The great thing about this edition as well is it's, the, it's got a lovely afterword where you talk oh, about yes, where you right, talk yeah. about its life so far mm. and um, how Irvin Welsh when he praised the, the book in a famous village voice piece um, a few years ago um, was talking about its political resonances yes. and all that and how you were like oh I didn't notice that that actually <laughs> passed me by um, so you didn't think to yourself that this is a portrait no, of Thatcher's Britain when you were not thinking. at all yeah. not at all but once uh, I'd never met um, Irvin. Mm-hmm. I've, I've subsequently met him after he did the, the, the article, but I'd never met him before. Um, and I was, for a few seconds, I was quite puzzled when I read this. I thought, oh my God, is it? Have I written a political No, I thought only grown ups did that. <laughs> and then um, I thought, oh no, wait a minute. Yep, this makes sense. But it wasn't the sense that I impose and it's a sense that seemed to kind of arise mm. up out of out of the narrative and yeah it's fine yeah and yeah, yeah. I think even now you know Irvin um puts it in with Thatcher at Britain but reading it now it still feels really yes relevant. I think I think what's going on now mm. um is uh, absolutely chimes in with what's with what's happening then the the, the, the in the novel you know the the desperation, in fact, if now it's possibly even more frantic, mm, particularly yeah. on the on 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 money, mm. you know, and people desperate because it just seems to kind of disappear in their hands the more and the more they get it and so on, and so it really is, I think, very timely that it that it has come out again, and. Well, my goodness, I'm so glad I'm not an executive in the present day Britain. <laughs> Definitely, yes. No, you, you've had a very peripatetic yes, existence. Yes, I think we could describe it as that. <laughs> it's, it's gracing it, but yes. So what made you finally put pen to paper, or had you always done that? Well, I had done from, you know, like like... Lots of teenagers, you know, wrote poems. Yeah. You know, the world's so big, I'm so small. Why won't you go out with me? You know, that kind of thing. And I carried on. And when I, I left home at 16 and went down to London and I was living down there, just sort of the way people did, you know, mm. just sort of hanging out, basically. And I met some musicians and I ended up writing pop lyrics <laughs> for them. Do you remember a band called um, Tangerine Dream? Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Well, we were called Tangerine Peel, ah. <laughs> which is so close, but That's so great. far away. Yes. And we made three records, and um, that, that, that was about... I wasn't actually fronting in the band. I was kind so of you were always the behind the scenes? Yes, I was writing So you were never on lyrics. stage? No, no, I was never on stage. And... It, well, in fact, their only appearance for the, on TV, they were once they were on the Tony Blackburn show with, with tartan miniskirts and dry ice around their knees. And that was the high point. Yeah. So if you can imagine what the rest of it was like. Was that before or after the Bay City Rollers? I think that would have been before. Right. I, think, I mean, they weren't Scottish. Uh-huh. You know, this was... A, I, don't oh, know, right. I don't know where the <laughs> tartan miniskirts came from, but anyway, <laughs> anyway, they put them in. Uh, the people put the, 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 the band into them. Um, but yeah, the band just fell apart. I continued to, to write. Mm-hmm. And then someone said, oh, 
you're writing poems. And I said, no, they're song lyrics. Because I was hoping there'd be another band, you see. Right. And he said, oh, no, you should try them as poems. So I began to send them to magazines instead, and then that was it. I'm quite, I'm quite fascinated by your um, 70s period with the Lost Poets. Mm. You came back up to Edinburgh and started a sort of loose yes, ba- band of poets. Yeah, um, that was with, it was me, Andrew Gregg, Liz Lockhead, uh, Brian McCabe, mm. first of all. And we, yeah, we just went all over the place, in, in, well, all over the place in Scotland. <laughs> and we did lots of residencies, like at the Traverse and, and during the Fringe, Adam House Theatre down the road, theatre workshop, all this, you know, we do long yeah. way. And it was great. And that was, was, good. was that, that more performance-led? That was, that was yeah, we, we didn't think of ourselves as performance poets. We would, we would just get up and read it wasn't like now where there's lots and lots of yeah. readings going on. I mean, in fact, we were one of the earliest that we didn't really yeah. realise it. We just, <laughs> the pioneers. We just did it, the pioneers. <laughs> yeah, the kind of in this very innocent pioneers, <laughs> yeah. I, I hasten to add. And um, it, was, it was really good. I mean, we learned to do readings. We learned to kind of present our work, mm. really, I think. And strangely, when, I, when all this, you know, performance poetry started... Uh, I was invited by, I can't remember, Noi Riki or someone to go along with, or mm-hmm. some other group to do a reading there. And I was on with some other guy. And, and at the end, he said, God, you're a performance poet. <laughs> and I said, am I? <laughs> I did really no idea because to me, that was just, again, it's the oral tradition. Yeah. So yeah. it just goes back to that again. Yeah. That's really it. So. And sound. Sound and is sound. really what it's all about. Sound. Yeah. Except that I, I, I must say, I do have a real admiration for the ones that get up and perform without actually having a, yeah. the book holding it. I mean, I hardly ever look at the book, but my God, I need it. All <laughs> Just in <laughs> case. Is it a comfort thing? It's a comfort blanket, <laughs> without a doubt, yes. But I really need it. Yeah. <laughs> so you were saying um, uh, earlier on how you pretty much have the same discipline in the way you approach any kind of yes, work, be it yep. poems or... Poetry, stories, whatever, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, the only difference is if I'm being commissioned to do something. Right. You know, maybe sometimes I get commissioned to do poems and uh, that's that's fine. I mean, I learned to do that as, as Macker, as poet, lawyer, yeah. friend, but I was a bit kind of, oh, my God. <laughs> what was that experience God. like? <gasps> Well, at first I thought, my God, my creativity can't get turned off and on like a tap, I thought. And then I found it could. And it was great because I found myself writing about things that had never crossed my mind before. But I got off to a very good start because the first one I ever wrote was for the Malt Whiskey Society. Oh. A poem in praise of whiskey. Yeah. So how hard is that? <laughs> Although it's a great tradition, so, yes. you know, maybe anxious making at the same yes. time. <laughs> so it was good. To, you know, I got, I got off to that, which, which was a good start. Mm-hmm. But that's... Because there I know what I'm supposed to be kind of writing about. Mm-hmm. And if I'm doing a play, mm-hmm. then I, I, in the past I did quite a few plays for... Um, for the BBC, for the radio, and also for things like pies and pints and stuff like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I would kind of, because you have a, with theatre, you always have parameters, you know, you know how many characters, you, the maximum you can have, you know, how long it's going to be, etc. You know, it's theatre, so it has to be 
you know, there has to be some kind of entertainment as well as, you know, profound truths. I mean, nothing more boring than universal truth wall to wall. You know, you need to have, yeah, to have it leavened a bit with, mm. a, bit, with a bit of humour. So these things are already fed in before I've, I've started, whereas when I'm doing a novel or something, I mean, I've, it's just literally, it's a blank sheet of paper and a blank mm. imagination. Mm. And you write in the morning, is yes. that right? Yes, yeah. I, oh yes, I write most... Most pretty much most mornings, even 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 at the weekend. I mean, I think I enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, like you were saying earlier, Vicky, about I seem to be playing. I mean, for me, it's play, mm. and I just enjoy it more and more, and just keep going, mm. and that's it. So I work, yeah, usually from about say from about the back of nine to maybe half two or something like that, and then or two, and then yeah, and then I would stop. And then that's your days you're kind of well maybe but things I write longhand. Mm. So you so you with still, a pencil yeah. I have really regressed <laughs> <laughs> with a pencil and with A4. A pencil mm-hmm. and A4. I did that because um, I find God, this is going to sound so lazy, but actually I can lie I can lie on a couch and write <laughs> right, right. But it's with a pen yeah, it keeps drying way. out. Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly. So I now write everything in in, in pencil and uh, it's it's great. It's, it's fantastic. It just, it just kind of flows along. And, yeah, and you've also branched out in writing for children as well. Yes, that was about started. I think about a couple of years back, maybe slightly longer. Was the I, Trolls book? The was Trolls was the one? very first one yeah. I did. It was, um, I was writing this poem um, that I thought was going to be this kind of um, hard-bitten, deeply satirical analysis of contemporary corporate corruption within society. And the way that I'd seen it... Just like the sound of my voice. Like the of my voice. And the way that I'd seen it, or the way it came to me was that there were these creatures that lived under the streets in Edinburgh and then they came out and created mayhem, just like bankers. <laughs> you know, like and, and I showed the first few verses to Reggie, my wife, and she thought, oh, she said, gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> Kids will love it. Yeah. And then I suddenly thought, hmm, OK, let's shelve all the satirical <laughs> stuff. And, and I thought, oh, yeah, maybe kids... And it, as it turns out, yeah, kids really have loved it. So I know, yeah, I've seen you doing going. events with um, children. Yeah. And, and they do get very excited about... Yes. Yeah, the, <laughs> the kids job. really, really enjoy it. Yeah, and, and I must say, for me, it's been a completely new new venture and mm. a real new burst of energy and a new seam to, to, to explore. And mm. then I published the novel last year and then I thought, no, that's right, I thought when I finished that, which of course was the year before, I thought I'll, you know, I'll start another adult novel as well. And instead I found, again to my surprise, writing about... Um, well, it was actually kids that were that mm. were in the book, which was a complete surprise to me. I was like, "Oh my god, yeah, it's kids!" And and then they started having this adventure, and it just got wilder and wilder. And and I just went with it, and it was, it was great fun. Yeah, that's that's really, Stephen really, Frandan. Stephen Frandan yeah. take on the world. As yeah. it was eventually entitled. <laughs> so you do. I mean, even though you say that it's more of an instinctual, yeah. playful uh, uh, pro process. Yeah. You do sound like there uh, there are elements in the world that you do want to talk about. Oh, certainly, absolutely. I mean, yeah. of course. But um, I don't go in with with a message. I don't go in with with an agenda. Mm-hmm. The, that usually arises out of the 
the characters and the, and the interaction between them and the situation and and the narrative that they then go they go through mm. an airing kind of anxieties about about the world that, that, that I have whereas mm. if I did them in an adult novel it would probably sound a bit preachy or something whereas mm-hmm. with the kids they're, well hopefully they're, they're sparked with a, with an urgency of that's personal for them mm. yeah when I mean, you do it in your poetry as well like yes. your your magicians um, of Edinburgh book you could say that you, it was a, a brilliant chronicle of the city and you didn't shy away from Yes, you know, from 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 saying what I you saw. Know, yeah, yes, what, what, even though you were the macker at that time, yes. you weren't. It wasn't just poems saying, "Isn't Edinburgh the best?" And aren't our councillors yes. brilliant? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it certainly wasn't like that. That's, mm. that, that's for sure. In fact, I, I as well as you know, I, I did about half a dozen commissions, but I also wrote lots of poems about mm. Edinburgh. I just found myself I'm no longer taking it for granted, right? Yeah. Because I'd been made mac, and I was actually mm. looking at it mm-hmm. in a way that I never had. In my life, I don't think, and so when when the the, the trams was uh, in, I know where I'm not going to get <laughs> on about the trams, but when uh, that that was very current, just you know, for, well for many years mm. as we know, and I found myself writing a poem, criticizing the council and and you know and and everything that was going on and saying what a mess this is mm. really, but in a quite a kind of entertaining way, yeah, and. Um, and then it was published in, in the evening news and it then went online. And my God, there were all these letters and comments saying, yeah, you go for it, you tell them. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be unmackered. You know? <laughs> Drawing too much attention to poetry. <laughs> I, exactly. And in fact, the exact opposite happened. Jenny Daw, who was then the convener of the council, wrote me a poem back. Wow. Oh, really? So that was that was that was quite I was quite touched, um, and nothing happened. <laughs> nothing changed <laughs> as often happens when you write a poem. Didn't change anything. But there we go. Yeah. Yeah, I like not only in your poems but in the, in this novel as well. Even when you're talking about serious things, you you were saying that you always try and leave in it with humour. Yeah. And like a, one of the things that I really like about. Um, you're writing is you're not afraid of the exclamation mark <laughs> yes I know I, I've got to rein them in no I think it's great I think yes. I, I, I'm against Reggie the shaming out, she says, too no, many of them in here no I'm, I'm against the shaming of exclamation yes. marks because I think they do serve a purpose and I think you do it yes it's just that if you overdo it it weakens that yeah, so I've uh-huh. got to kind of find that critical point yeah um, but very often not as much in life I have to do it with Reggie's help and you're going towards humour with your next work as well that we're bringing out in August? August. Oh, yes, uh, the, the rain book. <laughs> yeah. yes. A subject we also know very well. Yes, I know, about. and what can we do about it? <laughs> yes. The poem's not going to change that. The poem's not going to change that. I don't think it's going to change that. However, it might make us a rich country in the as as drinkable water. water becomes more and more scarce, we might mm. find ourselves sitting... <laughs> On a gold Sitting mine. on a gold mine, you know. Another swimming, one. Swimming in it. <laughs> swimming, yeah. But we'll just, we'll just have to see. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a series of... Um, you know, they say the Inuits have got 30 words for snow. Well, that's yeah. actually chicken feet. Because we've got... <laughs> somebody said it was almost 400 words for, for rain. Really? In Scots. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and we use English, English terms as well, but Scots is really particularly... 
rich. There's so many gradations and so many different ways of basically saying the same thing. Oh, rich, <laughs> well, we've, got, we've also got very many types of rain. As we've well, got lots so. of types of rain as well, um, but all of them, unfortunately, are wet. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, but we do have them in different, in different grades, different densities, different yeah. angles of precipitation and so on. What's and, your favourite um, Scots word for a type of rain? Oh, God. Um, well, some of them are, are, are so stark and, and you know, like ding and doon, yeah. you know, which is just bang, you know, you feel this almost staccato yeah. feel of it, you know, and then there are other, other words that are much, much gentler for that kind of soaking in this. But, but as I was going through it and, I, and you know, I referred to dictionaries just to find, you know, the, the, the roots of, God, so many of them are Orkney. Really? <laughs> and Shetland. Oh. And having been there, well, I'm not yeah. so surprised. You know. Well, we'll have you on hand for um, identifying the yes. type of rain. Well, In the week of publication, we yes. can have a rain diary. Yeah. Yes. Well, hopefully the, the purchasers of the book will now be yes. able to identify. And yeah. that will make them feel yeah. better as they stand out there getting drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Drickit, I like that yeah, one Yeah, that's too. another good one. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Prayer. When I reach the centre of the earth, let there be someone with me. Each of us must bear the world's weight, but not alone. So when I return at last to this same hour and this same place, let there be someone raising even the emptiness in their hands towards me. <laughs>